All right, let's uh, dive in. Matthew chapter 28. The call of good news. So as we saw it last week, um, when good news is there or coming, there's always this great desire to share that good news, right? I thought that was sirens at first, and then it dawned on me that it wasn't. Um, Yeah, that was funny. Good news. Ah. Um, But there's always this great desire to share good news, Um, this angst, this um, anticipation. Today, we'll actually see evidence that the good news, right, the greatest news, the best news ever, isn't only simply desired or should be desired to be shared, but it's actually part of the Christian's purpose. So we were created and we were redeemed to be proclaimers of good news. Um, that's what God intended. God created all things by His grace for His glory so that all things would in turn give Him more glory. And God receives glory in the saving of His people and God receives glory in His people doing the work He has set them apart to do. Right? I mean, what are some of the verses that we have said more than any probably in here? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? For it's by grace that we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that none of us can boast. And you spin off of that immediately into verse 10, which is saying that we were created, we are his workmanship, created by God for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. So we're completely saved and redeemed by the work of God and the work of God alone so that we could be His workers. We are created and redeemed to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. As we look at Matthew 28 today, we'll see how the Great Commission plays into the Christmas story. Because at first look, it might seem kind of odd. Why would the Great Commission be part of the Christmas story? But here's the main idea, that God, the sovereign creator, comes to save his people from sin, calls them to make disciples, and assures that he will be with them to the end of time. If you will, let's stand. I'm going to read Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and then I'm going to pray for us. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we open your word together, we ask and we trust that you would meet us here. You know us, you know who's here, you know our hearts, So we're asking that your word be sufficient to each and every one of us as we need it to be. God, as we 
work through this Advent series, looking at the flow of good news throughout Scripture, throughout history. And we land today on the Great Commission. May we see that the good news has always been a part of your plan. And by your grace, you have set us apart, those who have trusted you, to continue to be the ones who declare good news. That you have given us that privilege. That we could have easily and should have been left alone in our sin. But by your grace, you chose to redeem your people. And not only redeem, but to call us your own. Sons and daughters adopted into your glorious family. And then given the most wonderful task. To tell the good news. So this morning, God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. That we would be greatly encouraged convicted and comforted by what we read and learn in your word today. And help us to not simply look at these verses as verses that we've read or heard hundreds of times probably, but that we would willingly and openly listen with fresh ears and a willing spirit. Speak to us today through the work of your Holy Spirit. So that we may continue to further trust the Son and glorify you, our Father. We ask all of these in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So again, God, the sovereign creator, comes to save his people from sin, calls them to make disciples, and assures that, they will, that he will be with them to the end of time. So, just like I said in the prayer, this is a text that um, if you have been around church for any amount of time, you have heard this, and you probably have memorized this, and you probably know this, and you probably even try to live by this. And the danger in texts like these is to simply glance over. If you're going through a reading plan at some point and you come to a passage that you know all too well, it's easy to just like breeze through that beast, right? To just skip on through because you know that part. You've read that part before. But there's always something new to be gained and learned in even the most common texts. And today, I hope that's exactly what we do. Starting in verses 16 and 17, again, I'll read. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We start with Jesus' great claim. And it begins kind of odd. Now the eleven disciples, so this is the time between Judas and Matthias. Now Matthias wouldn't get chosen until later. Judas had obviously um, met his demise at this point. So there were 11. 
And they were going according to what they had been commanded by Jesus to do to go meet him. And so right off the bat, we see this obedience in these followers of Jesus. It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They were going to this mountain. And I read some really interesting commentators talking about this particular text. Was it the same mountain that he had been crucified on? We don't exactly know. Was it a mountain similar? Typical elevation similarity that he had just been crucified on. Was it the Mount of Transfiguration? We, We don't know, but it's at least interesting to think about. That of all the places they could have met, the Sea of Galilee, any numerous towns that they had ministered in, they were called to meet Jesus on a mountain. And they saw him, they worshiped. We see their obedience, we see their worship of Jesus. And it says, but some doubted. And what we need to make sure we understand is the doubting is not from the disciples at this point. This was some of the other followers. And there was still a lot of doubt. I mean, you think about it, right? You see this man ministering and preaching for three years, and then he's murdered on a cross right in front of your face, laid in a tomb with this massive stone rolled away, and then all of a sudden, three days later, these rumors start swirling around that he's not there anymore, he's alive. It's hard to get. It's hard to believe something so drastic, right? I mean, even Thomas, one of the disciples, had a difficult time to the point where he even asked Jesus, let me actually see and feel those wound holes. And then he fell down and worshiped. The disciples listened to the Lord and they met him on that mountain and they worshiped him while some did doubt. Isn't that a picture of everyday life though? Where God calls His people, some worship, some doubt. Some are obedient, some not so much. Some surrender to the call of God, some buck at it. But the ones who are obedient and the ones who trust in Jesus, they worship. And then he goes on to his great claim. Verse 18, he says, And Jesus said to them, All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. What a claim. Right? All authority in heaven and on earth. So not the authority of the king, not the authority of the emperor, not the authority of his followers, but the authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. Now, we know that Jesus had made this claim before. Right? Multiple times. But there's a great difference when he makes it this time versus all the others. Because at this point, death has been defeated. Not death will be defeated, but death has been defeated. Sin is destroyed. And see, previous claims were certainly valid, right? Of course they were. They were spoken by God himself. 
But now the resurrected Jesus, standing victorious over sin and death, declares his authority. Could you imagine if you were one of those fringe believers who had followed the message of Jesus, heard the the tales and the stories and even the power of Jesus for three years. And then you go through exactly what the other followers of Jesus went through of hearing that he would become king, that tear him down three days later, he would restore the temple and thinking, okay, well, this is the exact Messiah that we longed for for thousands of years, only to then see him betrayed by one of his closest followers and then murdered, buried dead, then alive. And then he stands before you and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Do you imagine the power of experiencing that? of hearing the message of Jesus, of seeing this glorified, resurrected Son of God in front of us. What is the authority? The authority is as Lord. And it's important that we don't miss this point because His place as Lord doesn't depend on your acceptance of Him. He's going to be Lord regardless of what you think, regardless of what I think. It's, he's going to be Lord regardless of what anybody can postulate or anybody can do. He is and always will be Lord. And he's standing saying that the authority of heaven and earth is his. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's think about that for a minute. We just come off of this few verses declaring the humility of Christ. That he laid himself down for the good of others. That he obediently and willingly took the cross meant for him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Remember, Gabriel declared that Mary should name her son Jesus. Because he would save his people from their sins. And then the angels, when they announced the birth of this son to the shepherds, say, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Remember, he is Lord regardless of what we think. Every knee will bow. Now that doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden spinning off some universalism jazz. But what that does mean is that everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. 
for many it will be too late. But I can assure you that at the moment we pass from this life and we stand before God, that all of those who even doubted with every ounce of their being, and they see the power and majesty of God the Father in front of them, will begin to declare, Oh my God. And God will be glorified in those moments. So Jesus stands before all of these people, disciples, other followers. And they worshipped Him. And He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It fulfills the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Every knee will bow. Whether or not you choose to follow Him, that's on you. But He is Lord regardless. So maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Let's, let's give an example here, right? Maybe you were raised in a Christian home by parents or Christian home. Let's put that in quotes, right? Where parents say they love the Lord, but their lives look nothing like that of a true disciple of Christ. It was maybe more about just a look so that their business could thrive. Or it was more of a title so that people could think them good. Or maybe they were so overly religious that it became unjoyful to follow Jesus. Rules, regulations, standards. To the point that we become hmm, unwanting of this religion. We don't want this Jesus. I don't want this church. So out of angst, I'm just going to do everything within my power to defame this church because it's not what I like. That's all fine and well, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord. The creator of all things has put into place this beautiful universe, filled it with marvelous things, and at the center of that, he creates man and woman, and he allows sin to come in, also he can unfold the true story, and that's the story of redemption. That God would love his people enough, one, to create them, and two, to save them when they were unsavable. To bring hope when they were completely hopeless. So it doesn't matter what we say or what we believe or what we try to do. It does not change the truth, the reality that Jesus is Lord. You know, we sing Christmas songs during December. And I don't know if you've ever actually paid attention to 
the lyrics of some of these old early Christmas hymns, but they're teaching us theology when we don't realize it. True God of true God. Very God of very God. If you've been around, and most of you have, we just finished a series where we heard over and over and over again the factual claims that Jesus is God. That that's the center of everything we believe. That Jesus is God. There's nothing that can change that. There's no power greater. There's no source that will happen that will dethrone Jesus. Which is why he stands before his followers and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that great claim, that all authority is his, leads to his great commission. So now that he has declared this great authority, now that he has put forth everything that we need to know, he transitions to a command. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, therefore. Because Jesus is Lord, because all authority is His. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. All things are made by Him, through Him, and for Him. This authoritative creator, sustainer God has come to us and He has given His life to save His people. And God in His glory has resurrected the Son, defeating sin, defeating death. And this resurrected Savior is standing before His people. And He's proclaiming all authority. And in that authority, He makes this statement. Go. It is clear that all of Scripture points to God's redemptive purposes. From the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, we see God's work of redeeming His people. Sally Lloyd-Jones is right. Every story truly does whisper his name. And he makes this command. To confirm what the whole of Scripture is already teaching. That we have been set apart for one purpose. To evangelize the world. To take the good news, the gospel to all people. Jews and Gentiles alike. And we take this good news in order to make disciples of all nations. Do you know, I'm not going to do this, so you can kind of rest easy. If we passed out little slips of paper to everyone in here, and we said, write out the definition of a disciple. Do you know how many people would cringe at that? 
We don't understand discipleship. And yet that is kind of foundational for the Christian church. Most of us would probably write, well, it's someone who is trusted in Jesus. That's a convert. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus with everything he has. Disciples of teachers and priests in these early days would literally sacrifice their careers in order to step-by-step follow whoever they were learning from. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. And we're called to make disciples. Not simply make converts, but make disciples, right? And the thing is, is this is an imperative statement in the Greek. Make disciples, right? So it's not an option. It's it's not optional for the people of God. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Go make disciples of all nations. And I understand that most of us have no clue what making a disciple looks like. The church, our church, the church in general, has failed at this for years. We push evangelism and we want to see people meet Jesus and we want to baptize them and we want to just let them go. But, but that doesn't work, right? We, we have to go further than that. It's, it's more than that. We want people to meet Jesus, absolutely, but we want it to mean more. I mean, what good is a convert if they don't know what they're supposed to do with that, right? It would be like if you got a new job in a new field and you walked in and you were going to receive training on the job, but you showed up day one and they said, all right, do this. They didn't show you how to do it. You have no schooling for it. And you're just supposed to figure it out, right? It's probably not a good safe thing to say that that job was to manufacture an airplane. I mean, you don't want somebody who has no clue what they're doing manufacturing an airplane, right? Most of us probably barely trust the people who actually know what they're doing to manufacture airplanes, much less someone who has no clue. So why should we expect people in the church to take that same mentality to where like, okay, you know Jesus, good luck. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is bringing someone along and help, helping them see the Scripture, helping them learn the Scripture and how to put it into practice. So what's the question then? Well, how then do I make disciples? Well, he gives a couple umbrella terms. We're baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In here, we kind of see a culmination of things. To preach the gospel. To declare the good news. And this isn't just for people like me who have been called to preach. This is for every believer. To share the good news. And to call people to repentance. To not be afraid to say sin is sin. And the wages of sin is death. And then upon somebody's receiving the good news of Christ, and repenting of sin, we then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
So we tell the good news. We call someone to repentance. And when they repent, we baptize. That would be the conversion part. But notice he doesn't stop. He goes on in verse 20, the first part of verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it doesn't stop with simple conversion. It continues by teaching the message of Jesus. Teaching someone to read the Bible. How to read the Bible. To study the Bible. How to study the Bible. How to apply the Word of God to our lives. Because as Christians, we're called to submit our lives to both Christ and His Word. This is our manual, more or less. Who is the Lord? Turn to the Word and learn. What is the Lord's plan? Let's turn to the Word and learn. What does the Lord want me to do? Well, let's find out. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There are a lot of people that say it's not important to learn doctrine. They're wrong. If we don't learn what we believe, then we can't know the fullness and the beauties of who Christ is. We need to know the word. Some say all you need is love. Love means nothing if you don't know the basis of that love. Understanding the glories of God as we read his word drives us then to love and live the way that God has called us to live. We learn the word and we teach the word so that others can learn the word and teach the word and live the word. Because it's not even as much as just learning, it's learning and living. You know, I could sit here and read the Bible all day long, but if, if I don't allow the Holy Spirit to just change my life, I'm just wasting time. I'm just reading another good book. Right? But how many of us claiming to be Christians do just that? Because the reality is, is if we're spending time devouring the Word of God and we're not challenged or convicted and changed, then more than likely we're not Christians. And we are simply just reading a good book. See, true disciples make disciples. Discipleship is an everyday part of life. You've heard me say this before, but in the beginning where it says, go therefore, in, in the Greek that literally means go and in your going. Every part of every day of our lives is to be spent making disciples. Which is why it's so important for us to understand that our purpose is to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Until ultimately the whole world hears. 
Discipleship isn't isn't an event, it isn't an option. It's all of life, every moment of every day. Listen to this quote from David Platt. It's a very long one, but it's good. This is not a comfortable call inviting most Christians to come, be baptized, and sit in one location. Yet, that is exactly what we are tempted to turn our mission into. And if we're not careful, this is what our Christianity will consist of. We may come to a worship service, participate in the life of a church, serve in the church, and give regularly, all while neglecting to make disciples. Is that any of us? I mean, because when you read that, when you skip that last little phrase, it sounds like a pretty pretty good person, right? Pretty good follower of Jesus. They're, they're going to church. They're participating in the life of the church. They're serving in the church. They're giving. But it says, all the while neglecting to make disciples. It goes on. He says, the church is filled with people who have been Christians for 5, 10, 15, or even 50 years who have never led someone outside of their family to be a reproducing disciple. We have missed our mission. He says, this is a costly command directing every Christian to go baptize and make disciples of all nations. This is important stuff. This is what our life is about. This is what God has created us for. This is what God has saved us for. And if you're here, that means you're breathing, at least us hope, which means that God is still wanting you to do this, wanting me to do this. And I am just like you. I fail at this every day. But this is who God has called us to be. Disciples who make disciples. And it must be pretty important because this is pretty much the last interaction with Jesus before his ascension. The last command of Jesus wasn't to build bigger churches. It wasn't to donate a lot of goods. It wasn't to care for this people or do this project or stand for this or don't stand for that or stand against this and don't stand against that. It was go make disciples. So where's our time? Where's our life being spent? Jesus close out this great commission with a great comfort verse 20 at the end of verse 20 and behold I am with you always to the end of the age See, both the claim of Jesus and the commission of Jesus are not empty words he doesn't give us a job and throw us out there and just leave us be we are not left on an island. We're not left alone. 
We have great news. He says, I will be with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In Acts, there's this portion of time where he's about to ascend and the disciples, they're just wanting him to stay. What can be better than a resurrected Lord staying with us? And he simply tells them, paraphrase, I must go, but I'm going to send someone better. And he promises the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, to live within his people, to guide us. What a great promise for the people of God. That no matter what we are called to do or where we are called to go, God is always with us. If he calls you to the suburbs, he's there. If he calls you to Afghanistan, he's there. If he calls you to Liberia in the midst of Ebola, he's there. If he calls you to Alma, he's there. And there will certainly be days of difficulty and frustration and pain. But the Lord is with us. Always. Surrender to Him. Submit to Him and let Him lead you no matter the cost. I want to leave us with a quote. Of course, it's a Spurgeon quote. But just let it stir, okay? It says, brothers and sisters, think of something special you can do for Jesus. Let it cost you something. And if it pinch you, so much the better. It will be sweet to bear a pinch for him. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be your people. To be saved by you. To be held and sustained by your gracious hand. And Father, as we have moved throughout the cycle of good news to our need for good news, to the promise of good news, to the gift of good news, and now to the call of good news, may we understand that the whole purpose of Christmas so that we could go and tell other people about the purpose of Christmas. What wonderful grace that you have loved us and called us your own and set us apart to do your work. May we glorify you every moment of every day for the rest of our lives. And Father, we ask that you would continue the work that you began day one. That if there be anyone here that has never trusted in the redeeming, saving work of Jesus, may they do so today. In Jesus' name.
holy name we pray.